Welcome back to Playing Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 20 and it's all about helicopters. Thanks first of all to Martin Darlington who hosts History by Hollywood podcast and is a highly experienced helicopter pilot and instructor. He has agreed to help with the more technical aspects of helicopters as we probe two specific accidents and the improved safety that they helped to bring about. It sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it, to talk in positive terms about accidents, but it's also true to say that most commercial crashes that have been properly investigated have led to improvements in safety. This episode will focus on two helicopter crashes. The first took place on the 6th of November 1986 when a Chinook returning workers from the Brent oil fields crashed on approach to land at Sumbara Airport in the Shetland Islands. 43 passengers and two crew members were killed in the crash. One passenger and one crew member survived with injuries, and that was the captain. The second was a Chinook crash in June 1994 that was carrying 25 senior intelligence experts, which went down on the Mull of Kintyre on the west coast of Scotland. Leading security personnel from the Royal Ulster Constabulary, MI5 and the Army died alongside the crew. They had been travelling to a security conference in Inverness just two months ahead of the 1994 IRA ceasefire. The fact that high-level intelligence officers were involved, including members who had been in Ireland, has intrigued investigators and conspiracy mongers since then. Our expert Martin has some good ideas about what happened there, and we'll tap his immense knowledge about helicopters to get more information in the second half of the podcast. Let's begin in 1986, and we're at Sumbara Airport, where the Chinook piloted by Psyshup Bayed took off on the 6th of November after a delay caused by an oil leak from an engine gearbox. It departed at 8.58am with 40 passengers for the Brent oil fields and had a number of planned stops to make before heading back to Sumbara. The aircraft visited three platforms where it dropped off freight and passengers then finally headed back from Brent platform C at 22 minutes past 10 in the morning with 44 passengers on board for the return leg to Sumbara Airport. The Chinook was at 2,500 feet as it approached Sumbara and the pilot was cleared to descend to 1,000 feet after Vaid reported at four and a half miles from the airfield, he was then cleared to land on runway 24. Nothing else was heard from the helicopter. The fact that the captain survived the crash, along with one passenger, has made the investigation more illuminating. Vaid has spoken many times since the accident, and so we have much valuable information. So let's go back a bit, then re-look at the crash through the captain's eyes. By 1986, Vaid had already flown over 2,500 hours on Chinooks alone. First Officer Neville Nixon was 43 years old and had left Bristow Helicopters a few years earlier to help his wife Pauline set up her pharmacy business in New York. After three years, the shop was doing very well and he found that Pauline could manage the business alone, so Neville decided to go back to his other love, flying. Since Neville hadn't flown for nearly three years, he was very keen to take off and land as much as possible, and was rebuilding his hours. On the 6th of November, he had been rostered to do the afternoon shift. Since morning shift did two flights, and the afternoon only one, Neville swapped his shift with another first officer. Sadly for him, this change cost him his life. The original plan was to land at only two Delta oil rigs, but in the last minute they were given a load to drop at Brent Alpha as well. Bayed said later that it added about 10 minutes to their trip, and had they not stopped at Alpha, they would have landed before the technical hitch overcame the Chinook. The flight was uneventful, and after landing at Brent, Alpha, Charlie and Delta, the pilots set course back to Sumbra at 1043. They now had a full complement 
of 44 passengers and three crew on board, as I said. Neville was the handling pilot on the return leg, and Vaid was filling in all the paperwork while also handling the radio calls. While the pilots chatted between reporting above them in the front gearbox, things were literally falling apart. The bevel ring gear in the front gearbox was breaking up, and yet the pilots had no way of knowing about the looming disaster. Vaid said afterwards that, in his words, I discovered this when I listened to the cockpit voice recorder at the Aircraft Accident Investigation Board's workshop. I could hear the noise of the gear breaking up for the entire 30 minutes of the tape. About three and a half nautical miles from the runway, the whining sound from the forward gearbox suddenly got louder. The noise didn't seem dangerous at first. Just then, cabin attendant Mike Walton came through the door and told them that he had checked the cabin and all the passengers were strapped in, ready for landing. Walton also heard the noise but didn't seem alarmed. By now, they were only two minutes from landing, approximately 250 to 300 feet above the surface of the water, in the descent, and their speed had slowed to below 100 knots. Both pilots agreed, upon landing, they needed to brief the engineers about this noise and needed it to be sorted before they took off again. Vaid then informed Control Tower that Foxtrot Charlie was on finals and they were clear to land. As they descended towards runway 24, Vaid noticed a Coast Guard Sikorsky S61 takeoff for a training mission. Then the cabin attendant closed the cockpit door. A fraction of a second later, there was a massive bang. Instantly, the helicopter whiplashed and pitched straight up. There was no time for a mayday call. About half the passengers, apparently, were already dead or unconscious. The extreme Gs in the whiplash had either broken their backs or their necks or both. Vaid believes the co-pilot also died instantly as he was sitting without his back touching the backrest with the result that the whiplash effect broke his neck too. But Vaid was resting against the seat, which he said saved his life. The whining noise they had been hearing was actually the front spiral bevel ring gear falling apart. Once the gear split, it took less than 30 seconds before the two counter-rotating rotor blades hit each other and that was the massive bang they heard. The rear rotor blades and gearbox weighing more than a tonne parted company from the helicopter and splashed into the water about a nautical mile from where the Chinook came down. With no back rotors, the helicopter ended up pointing straight up. Vaid pushed the controls forward and the Chinook appeared to point straight down at the sea. What had actually happened was the cockpit had torn away from the fuselage as the aircraft fell backwards towards the ocean, creating a huge hole below the front rotors. Vaid said later that that was the hole through which Eric Morins, the other survivor, was thrown when he was unconscious underwater. We'll hear about him in a moment. Vaid was fully conscious and aware that everything around him was breaking up. Strangely, though, he believed everyone would survive. The windscreen had been shattered by the blades and glass flew into Vaid's face, cutting his left side and breaking his jaw. The rear end of the Chinook then hit the water at an almost 90-degree angle, taking all of the impact Nearly 20 feet would be completely smashed. All the seats broke off their moorings. Only the captain's seat was relatively unscathed, adding to Captain Vaid's luck for that day. During the inquiry, medical evidence showed that the rest of the passengers and the cabin attendant died on impact. No one drowned. The water temperature was around 8 degrees Celsius, extremely cold, and into this icy water Vaid was dragged, still strapped to his seat. He described later how he managed to free himself from the cockpit wreckage about 10 metres below the surface and then swam towards the light. As he broke the surface, sunshine flooded into his eyes, but he was breathing fast in the cold water. That was when a person popped up next to him, then another and another. 
Eventually, there were around seven bodies floating close to him, and that was when he realized they were not moving. Hydraulic fluid and wreckage floated about. How long could he stay alive? Back at Sumbera, the Coast Guard helicopter pilot turned to go to his training area and asked the control tower where the Chinook was. It had disappeared. The control tower had no idea. ATC had been head down completing some form or other. The Sikorsky on its training flight headed then over to part of the sea where they noticed wreckage floating about. They saw Vaid and winched him to safety. Apart from the pilot, only one 20-year-old passenger, Eric Morins, survived the crash. Morins had been sitting in the front row of seats, which faced backwards, which probably also saved him from the whiplash. Morins said he would never forget facing the 42 passengers as the helicopter plunged backwards towards the ocean. They knew they were going to die, although many were already dead, as I explained. Morins was more than lucky. He had taken action to increase the chances of survival. As he heard the bang, he had zipped up his survival suit, but was then hit by chairs and passengers and their bags, which knocked him out. The survival suit had acted like a football under the water, and although unconscious, it had floated him to the surface through the same hole Captain Vaid used to escape. When Morins floated to the surface, a wave washed over his face and woke him up. Luckily for him, just as his eyes opened, a dinghy inflated close to him and Morins quickly got hold of it and tied the rope from the dinghy around his hand and promptly passed out again. While there were no signs of other survivors, the Coast Guard helicopter flew the two back to hospital while an air and sea search failed to find any more passengers alive. A diving support vessel, the MSV Deepwater 1, started a search for the sunken wreckage at 9 the following morning, but strong currents made recovery difficult. Eventually, Shell Expo's multi-services vessel, MSV Stardiv, then arrived and recovered most of the wreckage. By the evening of the 10th of November, the cockpit voice recorder, the cockpit section of the fuselage, the rotors and rotor heads, and the gearboxes and associated control systems had been recovered and transferred to Deepwater 1, which was sent to Aberdeen. That's where the Air Accidents Investigation Branch, or AAIB, began its probe into the crash. In all, 44 of the 45 victims' bodies were recovered. An inquiry was duly set up, which found that the forward gearbox bevel ring had catastrophically failed, and that caused the crash. It then made three safety recommendations. First, all certification procedures were reviewed so that the modifications to vital components were adequately scrutinized and tested before approval and more closely monitored after their introduction into service. Secondly, the panel said the Civil Aviation Authority should report on the progress made towards the early incorporation of a specification for suitable condition monitoring systems into airworthiness requirements for helicopters. And third, related to the adult or automatically deployable location transmitter equipment, including location, crashworthiness protection and power supply, which should be reviewed in the light of the accident. You see, this was because the locator beacon broke on impact. It had been placed in the rear of the Chinook, like most aircraft at the time. And of course, that's what took most of the pressure of the crash. So all Chinooks were removed from service by the company after the accident. Later, Captain Vaid admitted his family wanted him to stop flying after his miraculous escape, and he knew the company would pension him off if he asked. Instead, he said money wouldn't fill the hours and that flying was all he wanted to do. By February the following year, he was ready to fly again, but first the company insisted on psychiatric checks and eventually he returned to flying in April 1987. He was 45 when the accident happened. 
He flew for another 20 years before retiring around 2008. Just incredibly brave. He's still around and writes about the incident. So, on to our other helicopter crash, which has some dark mutterings around it. The RAF Chinook, which crashed on the Mull of Kintyre in Scotland on 2nd of June 1994 in foggy conditions. That led to the deaths of all 25 passengers and four crew aboard, but almost immediately speculation grew about what actually happened. You see, amongst the passengers were almost all the United Kingdom's senior Northern Ireland intelligence experts, and it remains the RAF's worst peacetime disaster. In 1995, an RAF Board of Inquiry ruled it was impossible to establish the exact cause of the accident. The ruling was subsequently overturned by two senior reviewing officers who stated the pilots were guilty of gross negligence for flying too fast and too low in thick fog. This finding proved to be very controversial. A parliamentary inquiry conducted in the third round of investigations in 2001 found the previous verdict of gross negligence on the part of the crew to be unjustified and overturned it. Then in 2011, an independent review of the crash cleared the crew of negligence. So what happened? Joining me now to probe this mystery is History by Hollywood podcaster and military helicopter instructor Martin Darlington. Martin, thanks so much for agreeing to help us understand the Mull of Kintyre accident. Um, But first of all, Martin, welcome and, and thanks for joining us. No, thank you, Des, and it's nice to be able to return a favour, you having joined us uh, three times now, two times, three times, on History by Hollywood, and bringing your your um, your personal experience to bear there, so uh, it's quite nice to be able to, yeah, come on and talk about something that isn't a historically inaccurate movie. <laughs> great, and as I said in the preamble, you know, the intro, your History by Hollywood is going great guns. Um, and the stories you've been telling and cleaning up some of the errors that have been made in the movies over the years looking at history is, I think, really valuable. So um, I wish you all the all strength for that series as well. But oh, first thank of all, you very I mean, much. Great. Uh, Martin, tell us a little bit about your flying experience, flying helicopters. It's quite extensive. So I was uh, in the Royal Signals. I was a radio telegraphist in the British Army, and the Army has a wonderful meritocratic approach to flight training. Anyone can apply. And I was quite late to it. I was 30 when I went on my pilot's course and not really expecting to pass, but thought, well, I'll give it a go, and ended up getting through. And I flew Lynx helicopters for a few years, uh, Bosnia, Northern Ireland, and the UK, and then, or the mainland UK and then became an instructor. And then when I left, I flew air ambulance for uh, eight and a half years and also became an instructor there uh, doing, it's a different title, it's type rating instructor, type rating examiner. Then I had an opportunity with some ex-military friends who'd come out to the Middle East to help uh, part of a newly set up air academy. And uh, that's what I'm doing now. So I'm teaching young Air Force cadets how to fly helicopters. And um, I do love flying, but I realised that what I really, really enjoy is teaching. And combining the two is, is pretty fab. Well, congratulations on you know, finding your place in life. I know so many pilots, aviators have a big problem with that. And I've worked with instructors who are the worst possible teachers in the world and possibly people. So I'm sure you do a great job uh, being the mensch that you are. Now, first of all, <laughs> looking at this, this RAF um, accident on the Mull of Kintyre, I mean, there's been many, many conspiracy stories. What's your take on the accident? Well, I remember when it happened. Um, I was serving in Germany 
and had been to Ireland and then went out again not long afterwards. And the shock waves were due to the passenger list, which was it was the top echelons of military intelligence, uh, home, you know, the uh, Secret Service or Security Service, commonly referred to as MI5, uh, special branch from the police, and. It, it was it was so dramatic the immediate quo bono question of who benefits was well the IRA so there's then as it becomes an assumption that the IRA must have had something to do with it because the results were so beneficial towards them <laughs> no I mean they, they only ever as far as I know I think they fired surface to air missiles twice neither of them functioned correctly um, and that there's absolutely no evidence of that at all. I think what gave the the attention to the incident so many legs was this extraordinary overturning of the Board of Inquiry's initial findings by these two very senior RAF officers who said, no, no, it's not human factors aircrew and specific cause unknown, it's gross negligence. And that was shocking. That, what led them to make that decision, I have no idea, other than the, how can I say this and not sound like a little Bolshevik, um, there is a, it, it's, it's changed, in the 21st century it's changed, but this was still the 20th century. Boards of inquiry in civil aviation generally are to establish a cause to ensure that that cause can be prevented in the further in the future, either by changing if it's a systemic failure, then you change the system. If it's an equipment failure, you improve the equipment, as um, you were discussing with the earlier Chinook crash. You know, it was a, a mechanical failure, as we had with the EC-225 of a few years ago. Um, and if it's a training failure, then you ensure that appropriate training is given. Military boards of inquiry, and it used to be a bit of a cynical sort of accepted wisdom, but I do think there was an element of truth behind it sometimes they seem to exist to protect senior officers so you can't criticize the training because that's been signed off by senior officers you can't criticize the equipment because the procurement uh, details were signed off by senior officers and you can't criticize the operational procedures because likewise signed off by senior officers so you have to blame the individuals and it definitely has changed now but the feeling at the time was it was far more because of the political impact of the passengers who were killed that they decided, no, we, we can't have a, oh, this is just an accident and happened because the implication there is, well, no one's going to agree to fly on an RAF helicopter in the future, which makes us look bad. So they came up with gross negligence, which was, of course, quite rightly and long overdue, overturned by Lord Justice Phillips' um, inquiry. I mean, one thing you've got to look at is the crew had been on flight duty for over nine hours and including six hours flight time. So they were really pushing the envelope there, weren't they, when it came to their own presence of mind and situational awareness? I believe they had to ask for an extension. Now, I, I flew in Northern Ireland uh, six years after that and it was not unusual to request a extension to your duty. Um, but... I mean, certainly they would have they would have made a self-assessment. Are we all okay to go? And unfortunately, I think we'll never know. It's entirely possible 
that they'd have said, oh, can you not find it? Is there not another crew you can get to do it? We've been doing fly that five, you know, we've already done five hours flying. I, I don't know if these guys were just, yeah, it's fine, we'll get on and do it, or if, you know, if pressure was put on them, and we'll never know that because if they did have that conversation with anyone, that person is certainly not going to admit it because it would somewhat put them, you know, if they were in a position to have detailed another crew. But there would have been huge pressure on them to get this particular group of passengers where they were going. I mean, they were flying into um, fog conditions. Um, they were in visual flight rule, um, VFR, and there's been speculation and comment made that they they needed to kind of go IMF. What's your view about that? Um, I don't think the um, the Mark II, the HC2 uh, Chinooks had been certified for IFR at that stage. But I mean, the Lynx never was because it didn't have the navigation fits. But we could fly IMC. So we could fly in instrument meteorological conditions, but not under formal instrument flight rules because we didn't meet the requirements. Um, so we'd get a radar service. Um, it's changed now, it's basic service, but it, it used to be a radar information service or radar um, or a, a radar advisory service. Uh, the problem you've got is lack of radio comms um, in that part of the world, it's, it's sometimes quite difficult, especially if you're low level, to get hold of Scottish information or London information, which are the sort of radio catch-all frequencies. Um, once they saw the cloud and the fog, they needed to make a decision, do we go above it? You know, they, when we call it fog, fog is just cloud that is on the deck now that might be because it's very very low cloud and it's formed as fog but hill fog is just cloud that is low enough to envelop the top of a hill so i'm not sure if they had sea fog as in radiation or advection fog on the deck or if it was just low cloud that was able to uh, that they could see was in encompassing the top of a hill so it's difficult without knowing the circumstances. It's possible that there was an equipment failure or the indications of an equipment failure. And we won't, but that certainly, you know, if, if we haven't found out that out by now, we probably won't do. But to me, the first rule is you fly the aircraft. Before anything else, you fly the aircraft. So I don't understand why they flew into cloud. They should have climbed before it or turned away and climbed and tried to go over the top. I believe they knew that uh, Inverness, which was their destination, well, Fort George near Inverness was their destination, was in good weather, was in clear skies. So why they wouldn't have gone above, I'm not sure. But I don't know the detail of the meteorological conditions on that day. Yes, I mean, there's been some confusion there too. I mean, there was a witness on in the sea who said that it, the visibility is about a kilometre, kilometre and a half. And then during investigation, he changed his, he was a sailor, he changed his um, evidence. So they kind of discarded it. And, uh, you know, a number of people who, other than him, who were um, interviewed during the, the process said that, look, there was a fair amount of um, fog on the deck. Um, and it wasn't like a big secret at the time that fog had enveloped the Malacan tire. And then the onboard tactical air navigation system, 
um, which retained the last measured altitude, was a reading of, I think, 468 feet. And then there was some chat about the Chinook's VHF radio disrupting the air navigation system and so on. you got some views about that. What do you think? Uh, it's possible, but at the end of the day, these guys are flying... The, uh, things like moving map GPSs were just starting to arrive in the cutting edge of technology in, in, in helicopter aviation in the late 90s. But, you know, these... I don't think even the Mark II Chinooks had glass cockpits. These guys are flying, not by the seat of their pants, but they're flying on basic navigation tools. So there's a TANS, which is effectively a simple VOR DME system um, using radio beacons um, to, to point a needle where you need to be going. And I can't, I can't understand how people could think, if they know what they're talking about, how a radio interference with a navigation system, it might get them lost. It's not going to fly them into a hill. They knew where the Mullican Tire was. It's a fairly short hop from the Irish coast coming off Aldergrove and Belfast to, um, to the Mullican Tire. It's not a particularly long flight. So, you know, it's almost due north. Uh, I think it's maybe 12 to 15 minutes they'd have been over the sea before they reached the Mull. So they knew it was there and they knew it had high ground. These were very experienced pilots, you know, flying in that part of the world. So, so, so unfortunately, I think, I think the truth is they got to where they thought they were on their turning point, which was the Mull Lighthouse, realised it was cloud, said, OK, we'll climb. And they thought they were climbing at a sufficient rate to make safety altitude, which is a thousand feet above the nearest obstacle or terrain, and it's used when you're when you don't have visual cues, either you're in cloud or it's at night, and you're not exactly sure where you are. So I can only imagine that they thought they had a sufficient climb angle to reach safety altitude, and they miscalculated that. They had maybe had a tailwind when they expected a headwind, and they hit the. I think they were only a few hundred feet below the crest of the mountain. It might have even been closer than that. So they nearly made it. The only other thing that I need to ask is, there was a theory because of Chinooks being um, pulled by the Brent oil um, companies saying that they, weren't, um, they, they were costing too much to operate and they wanted to use Sikorsky rather than other, other helicopters. What's your view about the technical fault theory that something happened and they went into the hill? There's been no evidence, you know, knowing how crash investigations work. Um, we had a brief when I was in my pilot's course from um, a colonel whose, whose son's a pop star now, strangely. Uh, but he, um, he was the, uh, like the in-house expert on crash and crash investigations. And he talked about the ways they can tell from the depth of impact of a tail rotor blade into the ground whether the tail rotor gearbox had had a problem, whether it was just spinning or if it was still being driven, whether the engines were running, if the engines were destroyed, whether they were destroyed by the impact or they were destroyed before the impact and thereby contributing to the impact. It's incredible what they can tell. And this was mid-90s when I did my pilot's course. I, I, a couple of years after this incident, I started my pilot's course. So I genuinely don't think there's been a cover-up. I don't think, because knowing the way the accident people work, they are not, they don't exist to protect senior officers. They exist to protect the people who are going to put their lives 
into the care of those helicopters and aircraft in the future. And certainly my experience of them is I have a tremendous amount of faith in their integrity. So, no, I th unfortunately, I think the Occam's razor approach works here as it does with the Lady Diana conspiracy theories. If it looks like a accident caused by a understandable human error and all the evidence points that way and there's no compelling evidence that points anywhere else, that's probably it. I think it was just a miscalculation. Um, now, it's possible that, that, that they became slightly disorientated, which I've seen happen with experienced pilots going into the cloud. I've had it happen to myself. And it can take a few seconds to... We have a system called BWASP, which is balance, wings, attitude, speed, power. So if you become disorientated in cloud, you just say to yourself, right, forget everything my instincts are telling me, you know, get the aircraft in balance, get the wings level, the attitude plus or minus five degrees of the horizon, make sure the speed is within your instrument flying tolerances and the power is appropriate. Then you go from, once you've got the aircraft stable, then you go back to your original parameters, BA flying, you know, west at 2000 feet or whatever. It can take a couple of seconds to get back there. That might be what happened and it's all it took was those couple of seconds where they should have been climbing and for some reason they weren't to, to, to ensure that they were too low to clear the ridge. I don't know. The simple solution to me is you circle and climb before you get to the condition, the IMC conditions, till you're at safety altitude, then you continue. Be that into cloud or you might by then be above cloud. I don't know what the uh, upper conditions were, but I, yeah. The, the, the shocking thing for me was the, um, well, the most shocking thing, obviously, 29 people lost their lives but once that had happened it was this overturning of the board of inquiries verdict which seemed very fair and these two senior officers just banged in with a no it's gross negligence and in their own manual the RF's own manual of flight safety to find a, um, a, a verdict of gross negligence there must be absolutely no doubt whatsoever that is to me that's a stricter test than beyond reasonable doubt. Absolutely no doubt whatsoever that it was gross negligence. And as the, uh, the review, the ju judicial review, which overthrew that, that verdict found, there was absolutely no compelling evidence that there was gross negligence. Gross negligence is flying un under a bridge upside down because it's your girlfriend's birthday and then, and then crashing. That's gross negligence, you know, or taking an aircraft you knew was not serviceable and saying, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine for no reason other than you wanted to go somewhere or flying outside your personal or weather limits. You know, that's gross negligence. Not making an honest mistake for which they, it cost them their lives. We can go on for hours about this, but let me kick on to two more. I've just got two more questions. The first is, you know, the RAF didn't fly with um, data recorders and so on until um, a couple of years after this. You know, there were safety improvements that followed. Talk me through some of those the RAF uh, introduced. Well, I mean, I, I was Army Air Corps, so I'm not intimately um, familiar with the RAF procedures, but generally improvements such as that would be introduced across the military. And certainly it was quite soon after that we had cockpit voice recorders introduced into some of the Lynx helicopters, and they basically recorded a 20-minute loop. And if they lost power 
they stopped obviously recording so if there was an impact the idea was they'd record the crucial bit which led up to the impact so we used to joke that if we were being rude about um, you know the officer commanding or, or someone else yeah. don't crash for at least 20 minutes because otherwise they'll hear that we were being rude about them um, <laughs> and, and pretty much that was it now I know that some of the RAF fleet had cockpit voice recorders before that. What they have now, I'm not, you know, I've been out of the military now for 14 years, so I'm not completely familiar. Um, but I do know, I mean, they've got the new, um, in training, they've got the new EC or Airbus uh, 135s with a Helionics fit. And I believe that for training purposes, that records with video and audio and data collection so i would imagine that that would that would be the case for um telemetrics uh, as well and just before i left bond we had um we had a, a basically it was a flight guard system where when you landed it would detect the landing and data burst transmit that flight profile back to your hq a lot of the guys would be oh it's a spy in the sky you know they're trying to catch us out <laughs> it's like but you're an air ambulance pilot. Why would you be doing anything that is not in accordance with how we're meant to fly? You know, and it sounds a bit boring, but there's no reason for us to be flying at 100 feet. Unless, of course, we've got a non-breathing baby and we're on our way to hospital and there's low cloud. And I know if I get over this ridge, which means coming down to 100 feet, then I can get to the hospital. And when we arrive there and I get a phone call saying, why are we doing, why are we at 100 feet? I explain. And as an air ambulance pilot, they say, okay, that is within your risk versus need, you know, matrix of acceptable flight profiles. And we go on our merry way. So I think I don't, I can't see anything wrong with having as much data as possible on board all sorts of aircraft. So if something does go wrong, we can tell what it is and do we need to change the training the equipment the procedures the systems or you know or, or was it someone being doesn't have to be being an idiot just being inattentive yeah i mean if you look at that fact so you don't go flying as a special forces pilot into say um, um eastern afghanistan with uh, you know full data recording taking place have a crash and then you have some fairly um, odious people come and take a flight data recorder and give it to the Chinese or the Russians to have a good look at it. So you can understand from security point of view that there's a limit to this as well when it comes to military, military aircraft. Okay, um, well, I think it's just one more question. That is, you know, what else do you think um, needs to be said about this, about the follow-up, the accident itself? And, and uh, you know, we're looking at a kind of modern environment of, of helicopters that are now multi-rotors really are going to be introduced in the world and so on. What's your view now about helicopters, crashes and the safety and principle of safety? Um, I mean, it's, it's long been said that a helicopter is a thousand rotating metal parts waiting, uh, rotating around an oil leak waiting for metal fatigue to set in. Um, there are <laughs> enormous strains on, on some parts of helicopters. They... I think what's probably what we're looking at going forward is there will be an increase in efficiency and new materials and they will discover the lifespan of these new materials, composite materials and the like, um, hopefully through bench testing and, you know, long experimentation 
and monitoring, um, inevitably, at times, something is going to go wrong. And I think the important thing is that, that they just learn from it. I suppose a blessing about helicopters is you're never going to have that many people on board. It's, you know, they're not going to be that big. Um, but it's definitely, I mean, the, the, the hybrids we're seeing starting to appear, the um, Eurocopter or the Airbus now is, is X3, which is a Dauphin body, but with Ford propellers, which can cruise at 270, 280 knots. You've got the American Osprey that the Marines use, which has tilting rotor technology. You know, it, it, it's definitely got a place uh, in the future. And as Mr. Sikorsky once famously said, a helicopter will never be faster, higher, carry more, um, or go further than a fixed wing, but it can do certain things that no fixed wing can do. And then, of course, the guy who invented the Harrier jump jet said, hold my beer to his mate, and, <laughs> and designed the Harrier jump jet. Um, so there's always exceptions. You know, I think it, it's the, there are very, very few things that can go wrong with a helicopter that will bring it out of the sky without the pilot's ability to do something about it. The separation of rotor blades from gearbox is one. And we saw that happen with the 2G for the Super Puma crash on the North Sea a few years ago. Um, and that, that's, the, that's like the wings coming off a of fixed wing. There is absolutely nothing you can do. And of course, helicopters don't have ejector seats. So even the military, um, people have looked at them, but they're not really practical. So I think there's little we can do, but continue down the route that we are of test, evaluate, improve, send, you know, go out onto the market, be it military or commercial, and continue to test and evaluate and improve. And, and just, I think a lot of people need to remember, there's a, there's a great t-shirt, sorry, I'm, I'm, sounds like I'm going down a rabbit hole, but there's a great t-shirt I've seen, and it says, world's okayest pilot. And I think, Anyone who wears that, to me, I think, wow, not only are you not saying I'm the best, you're saying, no, I'm all right. And I know that's where my limit is. That's someone who will live a long, long time and be a very safe pilot for their passengers. Now, sometimes in the military world, you need people who are slightly crazy and who will push outside the envelope. In the commercial world, the only place there's a place for pilots like that is in the testing world. You know the test pilots as in not the maintenance pilots but the people who actually work with the designers and develop new technologies they need to be a little bit crazy and also incredibly analytical there is a huge marketplace out there for people like me who are all right and know that they're all right i'm not a hot shot aerobatic display pilot I can operate the helicopter safely and i know my limits and i know that the helicopter's limits always exceed mine if I stay within, within mine because mine are relatively modest and that's what not only makes me a good safe pilot but also makes me an effective instructor because I've had to work at it so I have strategies for teaching other people because I use those same strategies to learn myself the naturally gifted pilot often makes the worst instructor because he can't understand why can't this kid do what I can do if that makes sense yeah, certainly. You know the old adage in our business, which is the you know the old pilots and the bold pilots, but the no old bold pilots. Exactly, Martin. I think you can wrap up there. Um, I would just want to thank you so much, uh, Martin Darlington. You qualified helicopter flight instructor in the military, but also 
the History by Hollywood presenter. And if uh, the folks listening haven't discovered your podcast yet, I heartily recommend it. It puts all the records straight, or most of them at least, when it comes to how Hollywood has treated history. And it's pretty abysmally, as, uh, you know, as you pointed out when we last chatted. So thank you so much, uh, Martin, for spending the time with us. Thank you, Des. And I look forward to next time we speak, be it on here or the uh, or back on History by Hollywood. So that's our Omnibus Helicopter episode completed. I hope you enjoyed the details provided by Martin. And also thanks to Mike, the Bell Ranger owner in New Zealand, who suggested we look at chopper accidents. And to Rob, who is a UH-60M or Black Hawk maintenance pilot based in the U.S., your detailed and technical descriptions we discussed by email was incredibly helpful. Thanks for reaching out. So if you'd like to comment or make contact, please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com. That's abwarpodcast.com. There's a form there to get hold of me, or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until our next episode in the new year, make it safe, make it healthy. Aviate, navigate, communicate safely, folks. Bye.